Hello, and welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, conversations about impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose, even more than your why. Impact is where your unique self and business meet the world and contribute to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Desiree Attaway. Desiree is a seasoned consultant and facilitator known by staff, senior leadership, peers, and partners as being great at open, honest, and productive conversations. Welcome to the podcast, Desiree. I am so delighted to have you here. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So what have you seen happening in the past year in this whole realm of diversity, equity, and inclusion? I I know that um, certainly there's been a lot of social unrest in the past year around the issue of racism. And and, uh, I just love to hear your perspective as somebody who's been in the field for such a long time. <clears throat> yeah, so no one, ex- you know, 2020 um, surprised us in a whole lot of ways. Um, and one of those ways was not only COVID, but um, what happened in May with George Floyd. Yeah. And so um, um, one of the questions that I've been really pushing and asking with organizations, uh, companies that I've been working with is, Structural racism has been happening. Why didn't y'all see it before now? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I, and I know why. I don't know why they didn't see it, right? They didn't see it because our socialization into whiteness is all encompassing, mm-hmm. right? And it makes it really hard for white people um, for, uh, to see racism as a system and not as some kind of moral flaw. Yeah. And so, right, so white people worry more about being identified as racist than they do about understanding white supremacy mm-hmm. and the structural ways that racism shows up. And so I use the term white supremacy intentionally. Um, and that's because it is a historically based, institutionally perpetuated system of exploitation and oppression of continents, of nations, and of people of color by white people for the purpose of maintaining and defending wealth, power, and privilege. Mm. And it's a system that we all participate in. Everyone socialized into whiteness, even not white people. And it's a hierarchy. Mm. So the thing about this socialization that we all have into it is that it's this process that we all go through is pervasive and it is patterned and predictable and self-perpetuating and unrecognizable and unnamed and unconscious. And it teaches us all how to act within the system throughout our lives. And so we're born into the system, but all of these things were here before we got here. Yeah. Right. History, um, language, um, all of this was already in place. And so we got we get to navigate this system <clears throat> that is literally created for people not to see it or understand it. Mm. Well, and I am completely guilty of being one of those people that has had their eyes open 
this year and I the the death of George Floyd was a huge catalyst in that for me and yeah. I asked myself the same question where the heck have you been in yeah. terms of being aware of these things and yeah. it's easy to go into judgment around uh, me like what what the heck have I been paying attention to all these years, if not this? And <clears throat> Well, so this is the thing. We're, yeah. we're all born with these social identities. And from the moment we're all born, we're born unequal. And <clears throat> But you didn't construct this system. Mm. They were here upon your birth. History, tradition, myths, stereotypes, patterns of belief. But what it is, it is our job to understand the systems and have the awareness about ways that we collude with it. And what do we need to do in our own sphere of influence? Nobody's saying go out and change, but in the ways in your work, in your businesses, in your communities, how can you help to dismantle these systems so they're more equitable? Yeah. Well, there's a there's a quote from Barbara Love, who is uh, someone that you uh, I understand has played a big part in under in your own work and and she says systems do not perpetuate themselves they are perpetuated by the actions of people who act automatically on the basis of their socialization so it's that mm-hmm. automatic reaction as opposed to making conscious choices about how you want to behave uh, is that fair to say right. oh no absolutely this and so one barbara love is one of my greatest teachers I, uh, I teach a framework that she has called liberatory consciousness, mm-hmm. which is a, um, it's a root analysis framework that we use for, um, um, w- that we use around racial equity issues. And it, so it, the framework goes um, awareness, analysis, action, accountability, mm-hmm. right? So you woke up this summer with George Floyd, right? Mm-hmm. The awareness mm-hmm. was there. And it's this awareness we get to, this is a painful point for people. Like, why didn't I know before? Why didn't I see this? What was happening? And this is a really painful within organizations, within companies. When we realize, oh, our black staff are not having that, that, that their employee experience is not the same as other folks are. And so, after awareness is analysis, right? This is where we dig in deep and learn, why is this happening? Who does this always happen to? Who is never affected by this, right? Mm-hmm. And the deeper our analysis, the better next right action we take. So now that I got a deeper analysis and I know what my employee experience is for my black employees, now we've done the data, we've talked to people. I'm like, oh, they're not getting referred as much as other people in our companies mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Hmm, they were the smallest amount of people who got promoted, even though folks may have been here longer. Right. Once we have that data and that deeper analysis around it, and not only is this not the, um, our black staff are not having the same experience as other folks, but guess what? Our black women are not having the same experience. Like yeah. that yeah. It is the intersectionality of right of all mm-hmm. those identities. Yeah. I wanted, and, and I wanted to once we in. have that, Go ahead. I was just going to say, once we have that, then we can think about what's the next action that's going to cause the least amount of harm. And we can also think who's going to hold us accountable for making the changes to policies and to systems and changing our culture. And, and Dr. Love gives that beautiful framework for us to start working through with, you know, with intentionality. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I'd love to come back to intersectionality. That's something I really wanted to ask you about. But, but before we do that, just to, to take a look at this framework of liberatory consciousness, so awareness followed by analysis, followed by action, followed by accountability and ally, allyship. I think what happens for a lot of people, and I know it was certainly my impulse, was, oh, wow, you know, my awareness has shifted. Now I want to jump into action. What do I do? So what's, you don't what, jump what's in wrong action. with that? Yeah. Well, because you're going to cause harm because mm. you don't know what to do. And because, um, and, and because this is it, you may decide, hey, I got a great idea that can support, um, that can support women within my organization, which may be fine and fantastic and purposeful. But you may not understand that that solution works for white women and what, Black women need, what Latinx women need, what disabled women need, maybe something totally different. Mm. And so while that solution you gave was helpful, you still have left out the most marginalized from being supported. Right. And the reality is, if you built a solution that supported that queer, disabled Black woman, the most vulnerable and the most marginalized within your organization, Guess who would have been okay? The white woman. Mm. She'd have been cared for in that solution too. And so we need an intersectional lens to understand that not everything works for everybody, but that's, so let's talk about what equity is. Equity says we don't have all the same start, so we don't have all have the same needs. And that's different from equality, which I think a lot of people use interchangeably. Right. Those terms. Yeah. Right, because we're all, a lot of us, me and two was like, you just treat everybody the same. And that's a quality, right? Like, I'm going to give Ursula the same thing I give Desiree. Because we have to make sure that we're fair. And that's actually not fair. Mm -hmm. Because you may give Ursula a bike. Ursula has a car. Ursula doesn't need a bike. You may give Desiree a bike. But the bike you give Desiree actually doesn't fit Desiree. Mm. So even though you gave me this bike, I can't use it. Right? Yeah. So that's when we say, hey, what do people really need? And it could be like 20% of our folks need bikes. We could do that. Mm-hmm. 30% mm-hmm. of our folks actually, they don't need regular bikes. They need electric bikes. Right. And that calls on the organization to really make some much more considered decisions about what to do it's it's not as simple as okay I'll just respect everyone and that'll fix the problem it's not that simple no because because that's actually not respecting me because you don't actually see me for who I am Mm -hmm. right yeah and so you're right It, it what what it really needs what this work really means for us to do is what does it mean to stay in right relationship with each other mm yeah, I love that phrase, right relationship. That's it's important. Tell tell people what that means to you. So for me, that is what do what do you need to thrive within my organization or institution? Whether and my, maybe I can't change the broader business, but I'm your manager. What do you need to thrive with mm. my team? Right? And that may mean adjusting when you start, right? I, I think of policies and procedures, one, as our values come to life, but also ways that we protect folks. Yeah, for sure. Right? Yeah. 
we use them to, to protect people. So if I have um, a person of color who's genderqueer, non-conforming, and they say to me, well, and we have a dress code, and that dress code doesn't work for them, right? We need to expand our understanding of what that dress code is to make sure that that person feels can feel good about what they're wearing to work. Mm. So it's not just, and, and this is what dress codes say, you know, be clean, dress cleanly, you know. Right. And right. you're just like, wait, what? But then when I come to work, because that's so subjectional, right? My boss may look at me and say, oh, you can't dress that way here. Mm -hmm. But I'm clean. It's clear that I'm wearing clean clothes. Right. Yeah, the enforcement of it is not, it's not consistent. It is never consistent. Yeah. And, and, and my favorite is when I look over policies and they say things like at manager discretion, I'm like, you are begging. <laughs> oh, that's big trouble right there. <laughs> you are begging. You are begging for this to be inconsistent. And who gets hurt? Who gets hurt when it's something like that? Mm. The people who have the least amount of power. Mm -hmm. Well, I think one uh, aspect of, of taking appropriate action that can be confusing for people is that it's, uh, I've read this many times now, asking, imploring people to, white people, to not make people of color carry the emotional burden and to teach you what it is that you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And I get it from that level of, yes, people of color have been carrying an enormous burden and why add to it? But then it leaves the question and uh, of, so what am I supposed to do? I want to do things that are going to be helpful to people of color. So how can I then do something that I know is going to be helpful instead of floundering around and guessing? What can people do? You do your reading first. You take classes. Mm. You actually get real history, right? And you do that first. And then you go and you just, you listen and you follow leadership. The majority of people have never had black teachers or professors yeah. or bosses. Right. And so when you say follow black leadership, people don't really know what that means. Right. And so that may mean it start off where you're like, I'm going to go and I'm going to eat in restaurants run by people of color. I'm going to read I'm going to take six months and only read authors by people of color. I'm going to get an understanding of the reality for folks. And then maybe I want to volunteer with an organization, but I'm not going to come in and say, hey, I'm Ursula and I got all these skills. Let me volunteer. I'm going to be like, hey, can I stuff envelopes for y'all? Yeah. Just can, I, can I babysit kids while y'all have meetings? Hmm. Right? But you got to have, a, let's be clear, there has to be a level of comfort with people of color that a lot of white people don't have because we live segregated lives. Yeah. Right? If, if you don't work with folks of color, if you're not surrounded by them, there's a level of discomfort that we have to fight through. So it's about the connection. How do I be in the right relationship with people? Mm -hmm. I have people all the time who are like, like, I don't know, like, how do you make a friend? And I'm like, how do you make a friend anywhere? Yeah. Exactly. Right? And, yeah. And so it's, it's how, how do I, in my sphere of influence, if I look around 
And I see, wow, my life is really all of one thing. What are some intentional steps I can make to change that? Mm -hmm. Right? The other thing is to be humble and knowing that you're going to mess up on this journey. It's really important. And and this the one thing that white supremacy hates more than failure is conflict. So you're going to mess up. There is no A, there is no perfect way to be in relationship with anybody. Yeah. <laughs> so why do folks think that there's a perfect way to be in relationship with people of color? Right. Yeah, I think you're really highlighting the fact that this is, it's, there's a, some, there's work required to address this issue. It's not as simple as, oh yeah, yeah, I get there's an issue and let me just plunge in there and do stuff. Oh, it's there's internal work. Complex. Yes, absolutely. It is, it is a lot of internal work mm-hmm. and it's a lot of, of uh, systemic work as well. It happens on both levels. Yeah. It is, how am I in my interpersonal relationships with folks? And it is then how are the systems that I'm a part of supporting this? So how something that you've mentioned already in terms of, of uh, just a lot of emotion coming up in people, there's, we're seeing more and more overt anger, I think, from people of color. And maybe this is just my observation, but I think it's on the one hand, extremely understandable and it can be scary. So this speaks to what you said about white culture being afraid of conflict um, and it also speaks to white privilege and fragility. Like, okay, somebody's angry. It's not the end of the world. It's not cataclysmic. We can deal with, with, with skills. We can deal with people who are angry too. No. Well, so there are a couple of things. And um, I, I teach on this a lot. Um, people are microaggressed every day and it's exhausting. Yeah. But, but what you're talking about I, is, is it's a version of tone policing, which is a version of microaggression, right? Mm-hmm. Tell people is what micro, that, microaggressions are. I think it, it, let, let us know what that's Okay, called. yeah. So um, microaggressions are these kind of brief, commonplace, verbal, behavioral, environmental indignities that happen to folks with marginalized identity. They happen to black and brown people, they happen to queer people, they happen to disabled people, right? They happen to anyone who's not that kind of white dominant culture. And whether they are intentional or unintentional, and the majority of them are unintentional, the behaviors really communicate this kind of hostile, derogatory, um, or negative slights to that person or group. So what's an example? So So I'll give you some examples. So there are three versions. There's a micro assault. That's when you just out and out call me um, a, a racial slur, mm-hmm. right? Um, that's, you know, old fashioned racism. Mm-hmm. It's intentional. You called me, you tell a racist joke, you mock another language, you call me a racial slur, right? And then there's micro insults. And this is what happens a lot. It is this kind of rudeness or insensitivity towards someone based on their racial identity. Hmm. And we hear this say, like, I'll do a great presentation. Um, I, I did a, a firehouse chat with a major CEO of a, of a tech company with 10,000 employees. We did this fireside chat. 
we did it. It was awesome. And someone said to me, you were amazingly articulate. You're amazingly what? Articulate. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, right? Boy. Yeah. So that statement is assuming that, I mean, they're surprised that a person of color can be excellent in what they do. So how do you know that's not a compliment and rather microaggression? Because this is the thing. These things come off as compliments. The thing about a microaggression is context. Context and tone matter and relationships matter. Now, Ursula, I know you. And if you say to me, hey, Desiree, that was super amazing up there. Like you said the things I couldn't say. You were so, I'm never that articulate. You and I have a relationship. Mm-hmm. Context and tone matter. As a total stranger who comes to me and says, oh my God, you're so articulate. Oh my God, you're such an incredible um, credit to your race. Mm. Right? Um, And a a lot of people see these as being compliments, but they're not because context and tone matter. (laughs) And a lot of folks think microaggressions as, oh, I'm trying to get to know you. There are other ways we get to know people. But again, this is what we're taught. We are not taught that not everything we say is okay. Hmm. The other thing is a micro-invalidation. And that's when people say things like, you know, not everything's about race or um, um, we are in a post-racial world. I don't see color, right? And those are meant to make the person who say it feel better. Hmm. they're about that's about their discomfort yeah right but again what is at the center of all of these is the norm of whiteness and the white experience because let's be clear i absolutely when you tell me not everything's about race my question to you is how would you know right so when a person of color tells you something is about race what gives you the experience to know that it's not Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a great example of how we really need to listen and learn from people of color and not be so adamant about applying our own standards as yeah, me yeah. as a white person, applying my own standards. So, so can we go back to, to the original question, though, about like being scared of yeah. when, when, when people of color meet issues with anger? Right. Yeah. So I, I see this happen a lot in workplaces, right? managers who are like, I want to create this workplace based on equity and inclusion, but I let folks, there's this double standard that happens within the group where some people get to express themselves forcefully like men. Mm -hmm. I used to work in places where men would bang the table, right? And rah, (laughs) or get really aggressive around a project or a meeting. And everybody thought that was okay. Mm -hmm. But you let a black woman deliver it in the same way or an Asian one or anybody who's again, not dominant culture, their delivery is policed. Yeah. Right. And then, uh, um, you know, I'll have managers who'll say things like, um, you know, who gets to decide, you know, I'm like, who gets to decide what's productive? Who gets to decide what constitutes calm? (laughs) <laughs> I, and then they'll be like, "Where well, there are two sides to a story. Let's be clear. 
there are not two sides to every story. And some viewpoints do not have to be met with neutrality. Hmm. And what happens is we try to um, invalidate the statement of the person who's talking about that racial trauma because they're not delivering it into a way that we like. Yeah. And what yeah. that does, it helps to frame the person who's saying these things as over-emotional or not logical or not reasonable, thus making them super easy to ignore, mm-hmm. right? But it's a defense me- mechanism, right? Because it renders a perfectly legitimate complaint irrational. And it makes it feels like the person who, you know, you are calm as a cucumber, cool as a cucumber, right? You then you get to say how right you were. <laughs> but the reality is this, I have every right to bring a razor sharp argument against racism. I do not have to show up with this chilly brand of detachment around injustices yeah. and around yeah. things that are killing me and my people every day. Well, this is one of the challenges of the workplace. I think there's some kind of model of behavior that's considered appropriate and it doesn't welcome a range of emotion. And then that's not to say that it's okay to, uh, you know, verbally. No, no one's saying no one's being violent. Like being and being violent are not the same thing. Yeah. Being uncomfortable and being unsafe are not the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a really important distinction. Yeah. Because I think a lot of this, resistance to anger, for example, is around discomfort. Yeah. It's, it's not about lack of safety. I mean, of course, there are people who have a right. traumatic that's history. That's a totally and, different thing. Yeah. yeah. We're not talking scenario. about that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's a different scenario. Yeah. But what it ultimately does is, um, is when I shut you down, that anger and that frustration, then I don't ever have to answer to my own racist conduct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the subject has now changed from what I did to how you're presenting it. Right. Yeah, there's a, a wonderful book. At least it was wonderful for me because it was a big eye opener. I'm, I'm curious what your perspective is on the book called White Fragility, where it's uh, written by a white woman who does HR training in in diversity. And she talks about people's reactions in these diversity workshops. And I'm, I'm guessing you've had similar experiences where people get upset about the reality of what a person of color is sharing. And then the focus immediately flips to the white person who's having the reaction, as opposed mm-hmm. to the person of color who's raising an important issue. Yeah. So yeah, um, I actually know the book and I actually know the professor. She's um, an academic and a writer. And and I think it's a good book. I think the things that she talks about are are really important. One of the pieces that happens, and this is because of the way dominant culture is is, um, is, uh, what we're socialized into is If you're in a room and um, say you're in a room, we're doing some trainings or something is happening and a white person or the person who has the most power in that room gets upset. That could be power that you get from race or from your title or from whatever. 
everyone else in the room is going to take care of you. Mm -hmm. That's a survival skill. And we know this when we think about when men get upset and how women are like, just calm down. Or um, I, do a lot of, I do a lot of audits. I do a lot of equity audits of organizations. And there is always something that happens. It is a fascinating where we'll get all get back all the data, the qualitative, the quantitative data. And, you know, I'll be like, okay, so we're going to give the, we're going to share the data with the leadership team. And there's always some information in there about a leader who's a horrible leader, who's an abusive leader. Mm -hmm. And I go, you know, like, these are the things that I'm going to go over and I'm going to say the things like, or just pretend it. I'm going to say the things to David. Then there's always someone who's like, wait, 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 how are you going to say the things to David? And I'm like, I'm going to say the things to David. And there, you know, and it's like, let's massage it so David can hear it. And I know what that is. That's survival, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because that's like when you leave, David's going to lose it on <laughs> all of us. Right. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And so, but it's the same thing. I know I got to take care of this white woman crying in this room because if I don't, I can literally be in danger. Mm -hmm. And it may feel like that's, that's really extreme, Desiree, because we're in the workplace. Think about what happened all over the summer. When white women cry or get upset, <laughs> black people's lives are actually li literally in danger. Right. So it can be their life or their livelihood. Yeah. Well, and yeah, the whole Karen scenarios that kept popping up over the summer. And that's a, that's yeah. a great example. Yeah. Well, we, we've touched so many times on this. I really want to kind of go at, go into it more directly. And that's intersectionality. So Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a, a black lawyer and law professor, I understand this is over 20 years ago, came up with this concept that all the isms are actually interconnected. You cannot just look at racism. You have to look at racism and sexism and, and other isms um, in that context and, and look at it in the context of all of those things being at play at the same time. So in the same way that, um, and, and the other thing, the other ism I want to introduce in that, and it's not an ism in wording, but I think class and caste play a role oh, as well. So what, what, how can we possibly deal with all these things happening at the same time? I mean, I'm, I'm asking kind of a, a rhetorical question because we need to do that. How but, can we not? Yeah. I mean, the reality is we have to, right? Yeah. And, and that's why we have to deepen our analysis. So here's some questions. <laughs> is the question is not if sexism is in the room. The question is how sexism is in the room. Mm -hmm. The question mm -hmm. is not if anti-blackness is in the room. The question is how is anti-blackness in the room. The question is not is um, classism in the room. The question is how is it in the room? Right. Because it is always in every room. And you'll get pushback on that because people will, yeah. people in the dominant roles, I mean, I've seen white males in particular because they're the most dominant, um, just say, well, that's not happening here. Yeah. I had the plenty of people said it this summer until their staff, you know, started saying, I was really glad when COVID happened. 
So I didn't have to drive anymore because I'm scared of being stopped by the police. Mm-hmm. Or I didn't have to. So a couple of things. There's some great research. There's an article in a paper for about uh, four or five months ago in New York Times, I think it was. A gentleman was saying that, you know, working from home is hard and difficult with COVID. Mm-hmm. But he is so much happier because he doesn't have to go basically and navigate an all white world. Uh, he doesn't have to worry about the police, right? Because he hasn't been outside his door. Right? He doesn't have to worry about making, you know, is he scaring the white woman on the train as he's going to work? Mm-hmm. He doesn't have like, he was just like, yeah, I know it's scary and being in this house, but it's also a little bit freeing. Yeah. And a lot of people are saying that, right? Like, at least it's one less thing I have to worry about. There's so much, um, I think uh, she called it psychic freedom, the woman who wrote White Fragility, right? There's so much of space in my head as a marginalized identity that I spend keeping myself safe. And we know this for true. Women always know that, you know, what does it mean to walk alone at night? And we always have a plan, right? on how we get from our car to here or there. We always have a plan around our safety. Mm -hmm. Black folks always have a plan around their safety too. Right. Yeah. And how much of that energy, how much of my brain is being eaten up every day because, oh my God, my colleague the third time this week said that thing to me. Mm -hmm. Do I have enough energy to go and say, hey, Ursula, you and I need to chat because you said this thing and it's, amazingly offensive right or do I just eat it and what is the cost for me because I don't want to make waves and upset you Mm -hmm. so what's the cost that I pay when I eat this every day so how do we as as white people make it easier to have these difficult conversations how do we how do we make it the kind of environment where we get away from the politicization of racism or anti-racism and just have a conversation person to person to resolve these things. What are some of the skills we need to do that? You need to leave blame, shame, and guilt out of it. Mm. That doesn't help anybody. Right? You have to come from a place of love and responsibility of doing this work. And yeah, honestly, you have to focus on other white people. Hmm. Your work is to make sure other white people are not saying those things in the meeting. Your work is making sure that you talk to your uncle and your brother and your neighbor. Right? That's your work. Mm-hmm. Your work is to your work is to understand that this system was created for your benefit, your your comfort, and it's your job to understand. I think one of the things y'all have to really understand is what do you lose by not having, being in relationship with people of color? Yeah. Not so living much. with them, not knowing them, right? And, and articulate that. What have you lost by not understanding the real history? Hmm. What have you lost by literally being blind to what has happened all these years? And I think that's what is left out of this conversation. What do you lose by this socialization? Because you've been socialized in a way that is pretty inhumane. Yeah. 
So what does that work look like? Because I think that's y'all's work. Well, there's a, a really famous quote that um, in organizations, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And what it means is that culture will always take precedence. And I think a big part of implementing change within organizations around diversity, equity, and inclusion is involves changing the culture, which is not a minor task. It can no. be, I mean, it involves everybody in the organization. It, it's not just a top-down leadership mandate. It involves middle managers. It involves everybody in the company. So how do you shift culture in a way that's, that's going to benefit everyone? Um, this is what I do all day long. It happens on two <laughs> levels. Interpersonal, so there's a level of education mm-hmm. that has to happen. You have to value race intelligence and gender intelligence, just like you do technical skills. You hire people who already have an analysis and understand race equity. And you have to understand there's some people who don't want to do this work. Um, <clears throat> I have a lot of folks who will be like, well, why are we talking about this? This is political. You know, I didn't come here to do this. I just came here to work. Right. Supporting and caring and nurturing our colleagues is not political. That's mm-hmm. actually humanity. Yes. Right. Um, and if this is not something that you think is a value, that you want to live out in the not only how you do your work, not only that you get your work done, but how you actually do your work, then you're actually not. This isn't your place of employment. Yeah. Well, that's a bigger view on recruiting for diversity because it's not simply a question of putting some people of color as uh, figureheads in to say, oh yeah, we're a diverse organization. We have people of color working here. You're also hiring for people who you've determined are willing to do the work. On every level. And people come to me all the time, you know, like help us recruit black and brown people. Yeah. And I always say, I always say hire better white people first. <laughs> yeah. I've heard you say that. Why would, why, would, why would I bring someone into your organization that is going to be harmed, right? By a culture that does not support them, that does not value them, that does not see them. Mm. And you can get them through the door, but you can't keep them. And so you can look at people and go, let's look at our retention rates. Right. Right. Look at the retention rates. Do stay interviews for the few black or brown people that you may have and ask them why they're still there. But ask them what they're going through every day. Really get an understanding for their for that their employee experience. Yeah. I think that's where a lot of uh, initiatives within a company kind of fall down because the feedback on the success of a program falls on the people who are running it as opposed to, to the people who are affected by it. This is why accountability matters. Yeah. We don't get to hold ourselves accountable. White leadership, white leadership does not get to hold itself accountable. Yeah. Your black and brown employees hold you accountable. Yeah. I've heard this said, and you and I have talked about this before, where um, somebody has said, well, we can handle this. We can deal with this. We don't need to um, bring in, uh, people of color to address this issue, we can deal with it. And the, the reality is that without that accountability, without the 
knowledge, the awareness, the analysis, we can't because we're not experiencing these things in the same way. You have to hear from the people who are affected. You have to have tension. Hmm. Change doesn't happen without tension. Yeah. Name me one time change has happened without tension. <laughs> Which is why you got to create cultures where people can say the things, where you're not afraid of conflict. Yeah where you're not afraid of difficult conversations because change only happens with the tension. Yeah, it's a really important thing to remember. Well, and people think that conflict is separate from the process. Conflict is the process, <laughs> it's a critical part of the process. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I think many people do not have that skill. I mean, I, I, I think it's not that common in my experience of people really being able to skillfully handle disagreement and conflict. So, and, and it can be learned. It's not like oh, people okay. are born Absolutely. with this. So that's right. Yeah. But companies intentionally build these um, cultures of nice. Yeah. Yeah. Let's all just get along. Right. Which means let's all get along means you have to, um, Make yourself fit into whatever that cultural norm is, because that's us getting along. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Well, Desiree, my, my last question before we go into the, uh, the rapid round is, I, this is a kind of a big question, but what do you think is the impact of companies really dealing with these issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion? What's the impact? beyond making it a better workplace? What goes beyond that and, and uh, in, in the impact of what it is that you do? So a couple things is transparency and just being honest. This is who we are. This is where we are on this journey. And this is a lifelong journey and we got a long way to go. So I think being more transparent around where people are I think making sure we all know that when it comes to organizations, that frontline managers are the ones that will make or break folks sing. Making sure your managers have a level of skill that they need to manage across differences, across race. Mm. Create cultures where people can talk about power. Who has it? How is it used here? Right? All of those are really critical. And it is constant education. It is edu it's, it's having shared language. Do we all know what we're saying when we're talking about these things? Mm -hmm. Right? It's knowing that um, inclusion is what people feel. Right? Was this made for me? Or, or am I just somebody that they made some adjustments for? Like, am I really, do I see that this is a place that is mine? Um. And understanding that we all bring history with us, right? No, we're nobody separate. So right now we're having the pandemic, which is hard enough. Yeah. yeah. And I tell people that's that, like, let's be clear, that's hard enough. But are we sure that we know what's happening with folks in their homes? Are people safe? Do they have what they need? You know, how difficult must it be to be uh, a black person and watching all of these, the health system fail black people right now in this mm -hmm. moment? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a much bigger picture than just what's going on in the, it, in work is is more than just the thing that you're producing. Yeah. Absolutely. But I tell people, don't do the work. If you don't, you'll be out of business and you'll be irrelevant in 10 years. Now there, that's a clarion call. (laughs) Don't do it. Stay the way you are. You will lose market share. You will lose the best talent. Yeah. I think you know what's happening right now in the tech world. The top black talent are being poached left and right. Hmm. They are being poached left and right and I'm watching it happen and I'm seeing folks my clients are like oh we lost our only black woman VP oh we lost our only you know black woman EVP oh we lost two and I'm like yeah yeah y'all weren't doing what was necessary folks did not feel included right because we know at that level it ain't the money I think that's a really important consideration for leaders if if for no other reason and hopefully there people are embracing other reasons, but if for no other reason, the sustainability of business is coming to depend on it, to depend on addressing these difficult issues. It's not enough anymore to just kind of brush it aside or deal with it on a superficial level. I think, I agree with you. I think that business is changing and it's become an essential part of doing business in the world. So I, uh, I applaud the work you're doing because I think it's really important in helping companies come to terms with that. So are, are you ready for a rapid round of, of questions around impact? Sure, let's do it. Okay, great. So what's the biggest thing that you've learned about having impact? Um, that intent matters more than um, that impact matters more than intent. Mm. Ooh, that's good. I can mean I can have all the best intentions in the world, but if my impact is that I'm harming people, if my impact is that people don't feel valued or seen or supported, then I'm not doing my job. Mm. Ooh, so good. What's the one thing you've consistently done that's contributed to your success and impact the most? Um, I've been humble and I know that there, um, there are people way smarter than me and I listen to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, always good advice. Well, the last question is, what's one insider piece of advice that you'd share with an entrepreneur or, or organizational leader who's asking, how can I have more impact? How can I contribute more in the world? I would say especially if you're starting off, you get a chance to create the culture that you want. And you can create a culture that is inclusive, that is welcoming, that is equitable, where people feel a deep sense of belonging. That's gonna take more time, more effort, more intentionality. It may slow you down, but the product that you get at the end is way better than anything you could ever imagine. I'm so glad you you said that because I we didn't get to this, but uh, just you know I wonder about startup leaders and questions they're asking about. Well, how do I prioritize this over all the many other things? And you just you just summed that up the answer to that so clearly. Yeah, we all have to prioritize. We all right. So one of the ways that, that we stay in the cycle of socialization is um, 
we don't slow down. And I get it. Like there are times where we have to be speedy. We have to get to market. And there's a cost that we're paying for that. So it's just have some intentionality and awareness about what is the cost that we're paying by that? And is it worth it in the long term? Mm -hmm. Well, Desiree, thank you so much for being here. I think this is an absolutely critical conversation to be having, not just for sustainability of business, which we've touched on, but for the lives of the people that we come into contact with. I mean, that's what impact really, where it really um, meets the road and, and bringing humanity to all of our interactions is so important and vital for us. So um, I, I value what you do and I really am grateful for you coming here and, and talking about these issues today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. If people want to get in touch with you, or uh, how do they reach out to you? And, and is there anything in particular that you think would be helpful to people in terms of their further learning? Um, so I'm at um, theadawaygroup.com and then on all the social media platforms. It is my name. Um, my handle is at Desiree Attaway. So you can find me all over social media. Um, and I, I have a couple of things coming up. One, um, starting in January is a year-long program I do called Freedom School, and which is um, a program that happens online. It's a virtual program, and it's, it's, a, it's a learning all the things that you were taught to be true, how to unlearn those things and really understand. And it's an intersectional um, Black feminist lens that we bring to, uh, to this teaching. So I'm really excited to do that again this year. This is the third or fourth year of Den Freedom School. And then um, I also have in the spring uh, a program called Diversity is an Asset, which will used to be an in-person virtual teaching that I would do, but we're making it evergreen. Hmm. And that's, that is really focusing on, on companies. So it is the equity piece, but it's also looking at their marketing. It's also looking at their recruiting, their pipelines, it's looking at their policies, it's helping companies kind of really bring an equitable lens to all of those really key areas of the employee experience. Um, and that's going to be uh, going live in April. Great. So folks Great. Want more information on that, they can go to my website and get on my mailing list and then they'll hear about when, when that goes live. Great, okay. Well, thank you, Desiree, and thank you for the work you're doing in the world. Thank you for having me, and I appreciate it. You take good care, Ursula. Thank you for joining me. If you want to discover more about your impact, you can schedule a business impact assessment with me. That's 75 minutes of focus on your and your company's impact and how you can increase it. Just email me at Ursula at workalchemy.com to schedule your business impact assessment. It's my gift to you. Join us for more episodes, subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast on your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, so you'll know as soon as new episodes are available. You can even help spread the word. Rate and review it on Apple Podcasts if you like what you've heard. Thanks for listening. Until next time, for ongoing support so you can have your own impact, join our community of leaders like you by liking the Work Alchemy Facebook page.